as you can see, we're getting an early start on our Easter celebration here at Cedar Creek. As I, I said last week, if we can spend a whole month celebrating Jesus' birth, then maybe we ought to spend more than just one week celebrating his resurrection. And so that's what we're doing. We're getting into the Easter season. And part of our Easter celebration is this series of messages that we're in where we're exploring the five amazing invitations that Jesus offers to every one of us. Wherever we are, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, whatever our belief system, these are invitations that Jesus gives to us. And last week, we kicked things off by looking that, uh, at that initial invitation of Jesus, and that was simply to just come and see, to explore for ourselves who Jesus really is, to not just take what our parents said or what a pastor said or what some professor told us, but to examine the evidence for ourselves, to see who Jesus is, to get close to him, to get to know him better. Now, interestingly, we sometimes have this kind of idea in our minds that in order to get close to Jesus, that I have to have complete belief in him and total obedience to him. To get close to him, I've got to have all these questions, all these issues already worked out so that I have complete faith in him. But what we see in the gospels is actually the opposite. Jesus invites us to come and get close to him, whatever we believe or don't believe, however much we trust or don't trust in him. Why? Because Jesus knows that the closer we get to him, the more we will believe in him and trust him. And so what I want to do today is look at this second invitation from Jesus, and that is to come and follow to move from just coming and seeing and exploring who he is to actually acting based on who we discover Jesus to be. Jesus says, come and see. Then he says, come and follow. In fact, this invitation to follow him is the most frequent request Jesus makes of the people around him. More than asking people to believe in him, more than asking people to put their trust in him, he invites them to come and follow him. Because built into the idea of following him is an ongoing deepening belief and trust in him. In fact, notice what Jesus himself says, John 12, 26. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. It's interesting, that phrase, follow me, that I've underlined there, that two-word English phrase is actually a single Greek verb. It is the verb akalukeo, and it literally means a continuing, ongoing journey in which I allow myself to be led by and to learn from another. And when Jesus invited people to follow him, the people he was speaking to, they understood that concept because it was built into their culture. See, in first century Judaism, the time that Jesus lived, all education 
was religious education. All children were trained in understanding the law of Moses and the the words of the prophet. In other words, what we call the Old Testament, children were taught those promises and truths of God. And of course, when they were little, that education started in the home with the parents. But for some of them, as they got older, they would continue their education by connecting with a rabbi, a religious teacher. But they were not taught by the rabbis sitting in classrooms. They followed the rabbi wherever the rabbi went, and the rabbi would use teachable moments to train his followers, his disciples, to be able to know what the rabbi knew and to be able to do what the rabbi did. That's what it meant to follow a rabbi. And so Jesus' desire for us is not simply for us to arrive at some set of standardized beliefs or some set of moral behaviors. Jesus' invitation is to follow him in a lifelong journey of knowing him more and becoming more and more like him. In fact, that's why you may have noticed that I often use the phrase Christ follower more so than the term Christian, right? There's intentionality behind that because here, especially in the South, in the buckle of the Bible belt, if you were to ask people, are you a Christian? Many of them would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But what they mean by that is that is a cultural label that they have taken, that, that this is what my parents believe, or this was the way I was raised. Or they would say, I'm a Christian because, you know, at 12 years old, I walked the aisle of my church and shook my pastor's hand and I got baptized, or I went through a confirmation process and answered some questions on a test, and then when I was 13, I was baptized. They're talking about an event that they went through, but that's not Jesus' invitation to us. His invitation is to follow him for all the days of our lives. And so what I want to do today is answer that question, how do we come and follow? I mean, obviously, we can't go over to Palestine and hang out with Jesus, walking around, learning from him and and doing what he does. So how do we come and follow? There are a couple of things that we can do that I will believe will move us from just coming to see to coming and truly following Jesus. And to help us do that, we're actually going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, two of John the Baptist's disciples, uh, Andrew and John, went and started checking Jesus out. And Jesus invited them to come and see, to come and hang out with him. And they did that, spent a whole day with him. And then Andrew immediately went and got his brother and fishing business partner, a guy by the name of Simon, brought him to Jesus, and Jesus saw him and said, everybody calls you Simon, but I'm going to call you the rock. Well, for these three guys, that was their come and see moment. And it's easy to assume that they started following Jesus right then and right there. 
Like we assume they left their home, left their fishing business, and they became followers of Jesus. But when you read all of the Gospels, you discover that, yes, they started hanging out with Jesus, and maybe they went on some short-term trips following him around, but they continued to live in the same homes they had been living in. They continued to work in the fishing business as professional fishermen. In other words, this whole being with Jesus was still a part-time thing for them. But all of that changed early one morning on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You'll find this encounter written in Luke's gospel, the fifth chapter. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can follow along. You've got Andrew and his brother Simon, now called Peter, and their fishing partners, two other brothers by the name of John and James, and they were out fishing all night, right? They had been out fishing all night. Now, this was not a group of buddies going out for a little night fishing to drink some beer and tell some stories. They were at work. This was their job. They were working the night shift, the best time to catch fish. Most of the time of the year on the Sea of Galilee was at night. As it cooled down, the fish would come up to the surface and they were easier to catch in their nets. But they fished and they caught nothing. And so as the sun starts to come up, they pull in their nets, they row their boats to the shore, and they're sitting there wrapping up the end of the night shift by cleaning and mending their nets so they can probably go out and do it the next night. And while they're sitting there mending their nets, who shows up but their friend Jesus, this guy they've been kind of hanging out with. Only Jesus is not alone. He's got a huge crowd of people. By this point, he's, he's got a following. He's got a lot of fans who are hanging out with him, and they are pressing in to get close to him, so much so that Jesus keeps backing up and backing up until eventually he gets to the edge of the water, and he can't back up anymore. But the people keep pushing in, and so Jesus looks over, and he sees his buddies. They're mending their nets, and he comes up with a brilliant idea. He's like, hey, guys, can I use one of your boats like a pulpit? If you'll just kind of row off the shore a little bit, I can stand in the front of the boat. These people can hear me and see me, and they won't keep pressing me into the water. And they're like, sure, it's not like we got a lot of fish to clean. we got nothing else to do, right? So Jesus gets in the boat. He sits in the front. They back off the shore a little bit, and everything works perfectly, right? And when Jesus finishes his sermon, I don't know how long it was, but when he's finished with his sermon, as the crowd starts to disperse, There's an encounter. Something happens with Jesus and these four men that will radically transform their lives. And as we pick up the story here, we're going to see three keys to come and following Jesus. Three things we have to do to accept his invitation to come and follow. So let's jump in. Number one, first thing I have to do is trust him with my empty net moments. I have to trust him with my empty net moments. Moment. See, for these four guys, truly following Jesus started at one of the worst days of their lives, right? They've been out fishing all night and caught nothing, right? Throw the net, drag it in, nothing. Row over here, throw the net, drag it in. All night long, exhausting. It reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump, the movie, you know, where Forrest has got the shrimp boat. And he and Lieutenant Dan are out trying to catch it. And every time they put out on the net and every time they come up with nothing, catch license plates and, and car parts, that's kind of what's going on 
here. Now, here's the thing. When you fish for fun and catch nothing, it's annoying. But when you fish for a living and catch nothing, it's devastating. It's financially devastating. If you've got no fish, you've got no income. How are you going to pay the bills? How are you going to pay your taxes to Rome? And I would imagine it would also have been emotionally devastating, right? Like, you know, have we lost our touch? Should we even be in the fishing business? We're, we're all just a bunch of losers. I, I, don't, I don't really know what's going on there, but I imagine them sitting in these boats with their heads full of worries, their mind full of problems. And you know what Jesus does? He turns to them and says, hey guys, let's go fishing. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Just imagine, right? They've been out eight, nine hours pulling these nets. And now Jesus said, it's daytime, the worst time to fish, and let's go fishing. I would imagine they maybe even wondered, is Jesus kind of taunting us? Is he rubbing a little salt in the wound? I mean, everybody knows you can't catch fish during the day. Even this rabbi dude knows you can't catch fish during the day. I don't know what they're thinking, but I know what they say. Or at least what Peter says on their behalf. Look at verse 5. Master, we worked hard all night trying to catch fish, and we caught nothing. Now, pause right there for just a second. And I want you to circle the phrase, worked hard, and circle the phrase, caught nothing. See, that's an empty net moment. When you've worked hard, when you've done everything you know to do. And nothing changes. You ever had an empty net moment in your life? Where you're doing the best you can, you're working as hard as you can, and you're seeing no results? Maybe some of you are in that right now. You're struggling and you're doing everything you know to do. You're trying to do all the right things and nothing changes. See, those empty net moments, they're an opportunity to make a choice to choose to trust in Jesus or trust in myself. To trust in Jesus or to continue to ride the roller coaster of the up and down circumstances of my life. These men are given a choice and notice Peter's response to that opportunity. Look at the rest of the verse. Peter says, but you say, put the nets in the water, so I will. Now, you know, when you read the Bible, there's no inflection. There's no tone. So I don't really know how Peter made this statement. You know, maybe he made it sarcastically like, oh, but you say, Mr. Rabbi dude who knows nothing about fish, if you say go put our nets out in the deep water in the middle of the day, then surely we will. Maybe he said it that way. Or maybe he was just so depressed and discouraged and struggling, just like, yeah, fish, don't fish, whatever. I don't care. It's not going to make a difference. I don't know how Peter said this, but I know what they did. They went fishing. See, that's the thing about following Jesus. It's not just about believing in who Jesus is. It's about trusting him even when my life doesn't make sense. And of course, maybe you know what what happens next is amazing. 
They row out in the deep water in the middle of the day, the worst time ever and the worst place ever to try to catch fish. And as soon as they throw those nets out, as soon as those nets hit the water, there's an explosion of fish. They come up from the bottom and they're in the net. There's so many of them that as they're trying to pull the net in, the net is literally tearing and their boat is almost turning over sideways. So much so that Peter and Andrew have to call the other two business partners to come over and bring the net. It takes two boats to hold those nets and to unload the fish. In fact, if you read the passage, it said there were so many fish, it filled both of the boats. Imagine that, two boats full of these slimy, flopping. I mean, it's overwhelming what happens. And in that moment, a light comes on with Peter. And he falls on his face in the boat among these slimy, flopping fish. And look at what he says, verse eight. He bowed down before Jesus and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You catch that? See, these empty net moments not only offer us a choice in whether or not we're going to trust God, but empty net moments bring clarity into our lives. We get a clearer picture of who Jesus really is and a clearer picture of who we really are. Did you happen to notice that Peter started this conversation calling Jesus master, right? And and because Luke is writing to the Gentiles, Peter probably said rabbi, but because Luke is writing to Gentiles, they would not know what a rabbi was, so he used their term for leader or person in charge, master. He starts off calling him master, but after this, he calls him Lord. That's a very different thing. He saw Jesus For weeks or months ahead of this, he saw him as a great teacher, a good man, a good rabbi. But now he recognizes this is more. He is bigger. And not only does Peter get a clearer picture of who Jesus is, Peter gets a clearer picture of who he really is. All of a sudden, in the middle of this miracle, he realizes that he's not just a struggling fisherman with a whole lot of worries and problems. He recognizes a deeper need, that he is a broken, flawed man in desperate need of a Savior. That's the first step in following Jesus, to recognize you don't need a God to be the genie in the bottle to grant all your wishes and answer all your prayers. You need a Savior who can totally transform you from the inside out. And empty net moments are an opportunity to do that. So let me ask you, where where are your nets empty? Maybe for some of you, it's in your marriage. You keep working and doing all that you can do, and no matter how much effort you put into it, it seems like nothing ever changes. Or maybe it's with your job. You're sending out resumes, you're doing the best you can, you're interviewing really well, and nothing's coming up. Or, or maybe it's in your finances, man. You're following the FPU plan and you're paying off your debt and, you've got an emer- and you're working real hard, but no matter how hard you work, it seems like you're still just trying to get by week to week. Or maybe it's that prodigal son or daughter. And no matter how hard you work and how hard you pray and how much you try to do the right thing, they just won't leave the pig pen. 
Or maybe it's some habit or hang-up that you struggle with, and no matter how hard you try to break free, you keep falling back into the same old patterns. Look, whatever your empty net moments are, and please hear my heart on this, I am not up here trying to minimize the pain of empty nets. I get it. I'm not up here saying, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Eventually, Jesus is going to fill up your nets. I'm just simply saying that even in these painful, dark, difficult moments, there is an opportunity to take a next step in truly following Jesus. It means I trust him with my empty net moments. Number two, the second thing I have to do to come and follow is I have to be prepared to adjust my priorities. I have to be willing to adjust my priorities. Because see, following Jesus is not just about how you respond when your nets are empty. It's also how you respond when your nets are full. You need to understand the implications of this catch of fish. It's not just the miracle that Jesus does, but it is the breakthrough that these fish will have in their lives. For these guys, fish mean money, and they've just hit the mega jackpot. More fish than they've ever caught before. This is a financial windfall. One, because fish was the most expensive meat sold in the market. And secondly, if they didn't catch fish the night before, chances are none of the other fishermen in that region caught fish. So now you got a supply and demand thing, right? There's not a lot of fish available, and they've got all the fish. This was not just a good day at work. This was life transforming. This would have given them the ability to expand their operation, to add more boats, to grow their business. This was going to change their life. Only it was going to do it in a way they could have never seen coming. Look at what Jesus says, verse 10 and 11. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. This this part of the scripture has always fascinated me. Not only that they would walk away from this jackpot of fish, but what's fascinating to me is that Jesus would wait till they had all these fish to ask them to come and follow. If I'm Jesus, I'm thinking the best time to get them to walk away from fishing is when they're sitting there mending their nets, worried should they even be in the fishing business. So why does Jesus do that? Why does he wait till they have all these fish? Well, some would say he wanted to show them his miraculous power, that he was who he said he was. But I don't buy that because they'd been hanging out with Jesus. They already knew that. Right, like Peter had already had Jesus come to his house and watch Jesus heal his mother-in-law who was deadly sick. They already knew Jesus had power. I believe what Jesus was doing was teaching them priorities, helping them see what is it that really matters, what has true value in life. Whatever Jesus' reason for waiting till after they caught the fish, what I know is that one of the lessons that would be learned by one of these four guys was just how important it is to have the right priorities. Because Peter, years later, as an old man, looking back over his life of following Jesus, 
would say this about what it means to follow Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 2. Jesus said, if you follow Jesus, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires. But you will be anxious to do the will of God. Interestingly, the message paraphrase of this verse says, when you follow Jesus, you won't be tyrannized by the stuff of this world. Because it's easy to be a prisoner to material things, isn't it? It's easy. I, I mean, nothing wrong with material things, but Lord knows they take a lot of energy. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of maintenance. They take a lot of investing in them. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that material possessions are bad. And I'm not up here telling you you need to quit your job and sell everything you own in order to follow Jesus. I'm just saying being honest with yourself, does the stuff you have have you? Is it controlling you? Is, are you a prisoner? To, is it driving your energy, your effort, your work, your passions? It's not about what you have. It's about what you're allowing to have you. It's not about what you do for a living. It's how you see the ultimate purpose of your life. So what's your net full of? Is your net full of stuff, material things? Or maybe it's not the stuff itself, but it's what that stuff represents to you. Guys, we are the world's worst about this. We, we often use material possessions as the scorecard of our success. We use all these things, these toys, these houses, all of this, as somehow to compare ourselves with others to see if we are truly successful. Maybe it's just what that stuff in your nets represents. Maybe your stuff's got too many of the, your nets got too many of the wrong people in it. You're so controlled by what everybody else thinks or says or posts online about you that all your time and energy, your priority is having a good face-forward Facebook rather than having a real and open, honest life. I don't know what's filling your nets. I just know there's an opportunity there to adjust what truly matters to you. If you want to follow Jesus, we've got to trust Him in the empty net moments. We've got to adjust the priorities of our lives. And then finally, number three, we've got to move from commitment to surrender. To move from commitment to surrender. See, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Many of us would immediately assume that we're talking about ever-increasing levels of commitment to Jesus, that I'm making more and more commitments to Him. That's what it means to continually follow Him. And understand, yes, Certainly commitments, our commitments are a part of what it means to follow Jesus. But the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is not our commitment, but our surrender. Of all of Jesus' original followers, there's no better example of this commitment versus surrender than Peter. Right, Peter, who's the group spokesman, Peter, whose empty nets became full nets and then became abandoned nets, when he abandoned those nets, he was all in. 
He was fully committed. He would spend the next three and a half years doing everything he could to commit himself to Jesus. That's why he was always making these promises. He was always the first one to jump out of the boat. He was all about his commitment to Jesus until his biggest commitment to Jesus became his greatest failure of Jesus. You remember that part of the story, right? It's part of the Eastern narrative where Jesus gathers his closest followers, gathers these men together to take this last meal together. And at the end of the meal, Jesus said, look, they're gonna come for me, they're gonna take me. And when they do, you will all abandon me. You will scatter like a bunch of scared schoolgirls. And Peter, look at what he says, verse, Matthew verse, chapter 26. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. That's commitment. And understand, this is not just macho bravado, right? This aren't just hollow promises. He means this from the bottom of his heart. You know how I know that? Because when the soldiers come, what does Peter do? He pulls his sword and gets to fighting against overwhelming odds. He's going to keep that commitment to not leave and abandon Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, stop, Peter, put away your sword. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus not allow Peter to keep his commitment? Because Jesus wasn't looking for a commitment from Peter He was looking for a surrender to a bigger plan, a bigger redemptive purpose in the journey. See, that's the problem with commitments. They're all about what I can do. I mean, look back up at Peter's words. Look how often he says, I will, I have to, I will, I will. It's all about me. Following Jesus is not about my strength or what I can do. It's about surrendering to what Jesus has for me and what Jesus can do in and through me. It's not about me. A lesson Peter would learn just a few hours later in the courtyard of the high priest's house warming himself by a fire. And in a moment, all of his commitment to Jesus, all of his effort to be a good follower would be shattered with the crowing of a rooster. And there's that powerful scene. As the rooster is crowing, Peter looks up and he sees Jesus and Jesus sees him and there's this moment of eye contact. And in that moment, Peter is convinced that it is the end of him being a follower of Jesus. But I believe Jesus knew it was finally the beginning of surrender. Because see what would happen following Jesus' death, these guys would go back to the only thing they knew to do. They went back to fishing on this same lake and on this same shore. And on another night, of being out and fishing as they're making their way. They see someone on the shore and when they get close, Peter recognizes it's Jesus and he dives into the water and he can't wait to get to him. And as he does, Jesus has cooked a breakfast of, ironically, more fish. And Maybe you know there's that conversation between Jesus and Peter, that beautiful moment of restoration 
When Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Again, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times denied, three times given an opportunity to be restored. And yes, that is part of what's going on in this conversation, but there's something much deeper in this exchange. And we miss it because of the limits of English language. See, in the English language, we have one word for the word love. It's just love. Whether I say I love Jesus or I love French toast, it's the same word. But in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, the Greek language has multiple words for love because not all love is the same, right? There's the Greek word agape, which is the unconditional, perfect love that never fails. And then there's phileo, this brotherly love that is, you know, the best I can, but it's kind of imperfect. I don't always get it right. And then there's eros, the romantic love. And so when Peter and Jesus are having this, do you love me? Yes, I love you. They're using two different words. Notice John 21, 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you have this unconditional, perfect, never failing love? And look at Peter's answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have this broken, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but doing the best I can. I've got this flawed human love for you. Do you see that? Peter is no longer making promises that he's not sure he can keep. And amazingly, Jesus' reply, it's more than enough, Peter. It's more than enough. Feed my lambs. So can I ask you, what do you need to surrender today? Is there some circumstance in your life that you're trying to fix by your commitment? Some person you're trying to fix by just praying harder and doing more of the right things. Maybe it's time for you to, like Peter, say, Lord, this is all I can do. But I'm going to trust. I'm going to surrender to your plan and your purpose. I don't know what you need to surrender today, but I know that following Jesus requires a surrendered life. You know, in the first century, there was a blessing that people would offer to these young disciples who were following a rabbi. See, Jesus and his disciples traveling around, that was not a rare thing. This was happening all over. There were many rabbis and they all had disciples that followed them. And so people would say a blessing on these young followers of a rabbi and it was simply this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's this idea that may you walk so close to him that literally the dust off his sandals would cover your body. May you be so close to your rabbi that you be transformed from the inside out. And you know what? That's my prayer for my life, that I would be covered in a little more dust of my rabbi that I would love and care and have compassion and have boldness and have faith more like my rabbi. And that is my prayer for you, whoever you are, whatever's going on in your life, whether your nets are full or empty, my prayer is that you would be covered just a little more in the dust of your rabbi this week. Would you pray with me?
Father, I thank you so much for this amazing event that it's not a made-up story. It's not a fairy tale. These are real guys just like us, and these are real events, and they're so relevant to where we are today. And I thank you, Jesus, that you invite us to come and follow. I'm still blown away by that, that you would want us, you would want me, a broken, messed up sinner with way more questions than faith, a struggler, but you call us just to link arms with others and just keep stumbling closer to you. Oh, Lord, I thank you for that invitation. I pray that you would help each of us take whatever step is needed to come and follow you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.